0: The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three. This morning, we'll be looking at this together, kind of working our way through the letters to the churches as we work our way through Revelation, and um, the the letters are individual churches written uh, individual letters. To, to the churches, and it's often, sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, what applies, or how does this, what, what's going on here with each of these, and if you will, like, um, let's compare it for a second to, uh, if he was writing a letter to Cyclone and Hawkeye fans, okay, um, the letter might look very different, right, uh, my brothers are here visiting my, visiting us, and uh, one of my brothers, uh, I won't say who, went apostate years ago and, <laughs> and, and cheers for the Hawkeyes. And, uh, and uh, it, it, you can see how the, the letters might be different. Like, you know, if you're writing to Cyclone fans, like, you know, this is the way it's always been. This might always be the way it always is. You know, heaven's coming. You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Hawkeye fans, it might be, don't let your pride, you know, trick you into, you know, apostasy or something like that, right? No, I'm making fun, but the point is, is that when you're trying to understand scripture, and you're trying to say, okay, what, I'm, I'm seeing this message from Christ to these churches in the first, the first century AD, and he's writing to them, and he's He's, he's using this language, and he's talking to them, and I don't understand the context fully, and I don't understand what it means. What we try to do a lot of times is to say, "Okay, well, here's some universal principles, if you will, that apply." And in, in some passages of Scripture, that's fairly easy. You know, if you're ta- looking at the Book of James, for instance, James is written to a wide swath of Christians in, in, the, in the Roman Empire, and uh, he's, he's writing to them with certain things in mind, but they're he's. These are all, in a sense, universal things that apply to all Christians because he's writing, in a sense, to all Christians. In 1 John, one of John's letters, he's writing to, again, churches in a broad broad sense and way and saying these are truths that all Christians need to remember and practice and live by. But when you get to these letters that are written with specific historical situations in mind, with specific issues in mind— then it's harder to just say, okay, well, this applies to all of us today. Like, I need to take this away, and I need to really apply it. Take, for instance, Philippians, which is a book specifically to the Philippian church that Paul right? And it's about a conflict in the church between two women, and he's trying to help the church as a whole think this through and work through it so that they move forward and they glorify God together. But if you say, well then, here's all the principles we need to, to apply to working through conflict and they're all in Philippians. No, no, it's, that's not how it works because he's not writing a kind of a manual on how to work through church conflict. He's writing to a specific historical situation and he's giving specific truths that apply in the scenario and helping them to see how, because of what he knows in the situ, in, of the scenario, how those truths apply specifically to their scenario. And it's helpful to us as believers now, to look at those and say, oh man, this is interesting, not only from the perspective of what does Christ do for us that helps us to work through conflict and his example in doing that, but also you can also see Paul's logic. How does Paul tackle the problem of a conflict within a church? And how does he, you notice how he emphasizes really the gospel is central to the whole problem. And that's helpful in thinking through and applying scripture to a lie. So when we come to first revelation 2 and 3 and you've got these seven letters to seven historical churches in historical situations that we don't fully know the context for we have to be careful how we just take this truth or that truth and say well this applies to all Christians or this applies to me today in in ways that would not be helpful or take you off into the wrong path because Jesus is speaking to these churches and he's speaking from the standpoint of he's inviting them into his rule. He's, he's saying, I'm going to reveal to you through John what's going to take place and how my rule is going to be established on the earth. But he's to these seven churches, he's saying, hey, you." he uses the word conquer. To the one who conquers, I will give this and I will give that. And they're all eternal spiritual realities that we receive and we partake in, especially when we're part of with Christ in his kingdom. And it's not like we have two separate categories of Christians, those Christians who conquer and those who don't. He's really talking to all believers, and he's, he's saying this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to have faith in the one who died for you and rose again, who ascended to the right hand of the Father and is one day coming back for us. And you can see that even from John's writing, because in, in 1 John chapter 4, he talks about conquering. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, confess Jesus, is not from God. He's like, here's a the, here's the basic test. It's not like there's not other tests but here's a basic test. How do you know if, if, the, if the teaching, the spirit, the, the, the message is from God or not? Well, does it confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent from God, prophesied in the, in the Old Testament and confirmed through the resurrection from the dead? Do they confess that or not? Then he goes on, he explains, he says, this spirit this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And the, the Antichrist in that sense is against Christ, but also in some, some senses it's also a, a substitute for Christ. He's saying there's these messages that are, have, have been coming to, into the world and will continue to come into the world that seek to, to supplant your trust and your hope in Christ with something else, some other teaching, some other hope. That's not really Christ and not really the gospel, not really this, this settled hope that we have that Christ died for us and rose again, that our salvation is not in our own ability, our own efforts, our own works. It's because Christ died for us and rose again and offers to us to that as a free gift. But there's. Different messages out in the world that are talking about that. And he goes on and says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Here's the idea of conquering. He's saying, if you're a believer, it's not talking to, he, earlier in the book, he re- refers to little children and young men and old men. And by doing so, he kind of re- referencing the fact that as believers, we mature in our faith, right? We, we, we become more mature in our faith. But he's, he says here, little children, okay, you, have overco- you are from God and have overcome them. Why? So he's not talking about some spiritual, super spiritual person who's, you know, able to conquer. He's saying, no, you overcome them. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you have Christ in you, if you believe in Christ, <laughs> that's what you need. You don't need more spiritual maturity in order to overcome these messages. You have what you need because you have Christ. It says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so when we come to Revelation 2 and 3, and we see these messages from Christ, where he's saying, hey, churches, you're, you're doing some good things, but hey, you've got, you got a problem here. You need to pay attention to that problem. And he says, to the one who conquers, what he's saying is there's these substitutes for me that are they're seeking to creep into the church. And sometimes it's teaching, and sometimes it's practice, sometimes it's just our, our attitude or what we're hoping in, but those can be substitutes for me. But we, you know, <laughs> when you cling to Christ, when you cling to what he's done for you, when you cling to the message of the gospel, and you believe in it and follow it, then you, your feet are settled, you are secure, and even though this world is falling apart, and even though there's many evil things that are going to happen in the world, yet we have this hope. Why? Because we have been born again, right? This is again from John chapter 3, another book that John wrote, where he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying you have new spiritual life in you. This is, this is who you are now as a believer. We, we go from death to life, and if you're, you're not a believer in Christ, it's, it's hard for you to understand what the difference is sometimes. You're like, well, well, they seem to be just doing a lot of good things, or they seem to be avoiding all these bad things that they say are bad, and, and it's all, it's, so it's a bunch of rules that they follow. No, it's not. It's not a bunch of rules we follow. It's because we know the one who died for us and rose again, and we love him, and we know that he's died for our sins and allowed us to be forgiven before God. And this is the hope that we have. And we cling to this hope, and we love this hope, and we we live in light of this hope. And that's the life that we have. And yes, that life means something. And here when Jesus is saying, hey, you need to live a certain way... He's not saying it in order to say, well, if you don't do this, then you're not a Christian. What he's saying is, is if you are a Christian, then this is the way you should seek to live. You shouldn't be deceived or tricked by these antichrist type ideas that are coming into the world and creeping into the churches, even in Revelation 2 and 3. And so there's these threats that Jesus is dealing with. And we looked at last week, at, we looked at three of them. From Revelation 2, the, the first threat was that there's truth without love, right? That we can, in a sense, believe all the right technical doctrines, but never really love the one who died for us and rose again. We, we've, we forget that part of it. And he's saying you, the, the, you can't separate the two. If you do, you end up with a, a church that is cold, hard, and indifferent. And ultimately, the gospel is not really in it in the second the second church he says hey you've got you've got the threat of persecution and 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 you're gonna you're gonna be tempted not doctrinally but just practically with the the intimidation of persecution and and the threat of martyrdom and keep your hope keep it fixed in the right spot because this life is not all there is and don't place your hope in this life alone and then the third church was that internal deception that comes from those seeking wealth. And they were basically saying, Jesus doesn't matter for acceptance by God as much as kind of having friends and gaining wealth. Like if you can, you know, have success in this life with your neighbors and friends, then, then you'll be okay. And many people live that way, right? Many people who would think, well, I'm, I'm an okay Christian. What they're really concerned about is not trusting in Jesus and looking to him for their hope. They're really saying, well, do people like me? Do I have the money I need to survive? Because God must love me if he gives me those things. And so we come to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 18. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Revelation 2, verse 18. If you're already in 3, just back up a few verses. And let's notice... the, the message here to the church in Thyatira. He says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So he's talking about, in a sense, that judgment. There's that idea of judgment that's here and also that ability to see truth for what it really is. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patience and endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. This is, a, in some ways, a great commendation to say that your latter works exceed your first is to say, hey, you, you've not grown tired in doing the right things. You've, you've been faithful, and you've in, seek to grow your influence and grow your love for me. But he says, but this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he commends them, but at the same time he challenges them because they're being influenced, evidently, by some woman prophetess who he compares to Jezebel, and says this woman is influencing the church. And the word here for uh, that's that's word for that's translated tolerate here is actually the word forgive. It's often translated forgive. And the idea is that you're, you're just allowing, you're, you're tolerating, you're, you're forgiving this false teaching. You're saying, oh, well. And, and to compare it to Jezebel is an interesting historical reference, right? He's going back to the Old Testament. He went last time with Balaam. And these two figures who, who are outside of the church, the, 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 the people of God, if you will, and, and yet we're seeking to influence And change the the people of God to be something different, right? Jezebel came in as as Ahab's queen from another country. And she brought in with her, not that it wasn't already there, but she popularized the, the worship of Baal within Israel, right? And she did it by tying it to political acceptance, right? Like, if you worship Baal, I like you, and I'm the queen, right? And... Obviously within the context of this scenario, this is woman who calls herself a prophetess and is, is basically saying, hey, we, we can find other ways to, to get to God. We, that Jesus isn't the only way, and there's other religions or other practices that, they're just, that are better for us than following Jesus' way, and, and you should follow it. She's seeking power over the church in various forms. We don't know all the details But we can understand from the reference to Jezebel the pattern that she took. And again, Jesus says here that he's going to judge her and those that follow and get tripped up by her are, in a sense, seduced by her, right? And again, we don't know all the historical context, but we can understand that That some people come to the church seeking power over people in the church, and they say, Well, there's better ways of doing this, or there's more information, or there's other religions that we can learn from, other ways that we could follow. And they come in seeking power and influence. And sometimes it's political as well, right? even political influence and power in order to move the church and God's people away from their faith and hope and trust in Jesus and move it on to other ideas, religions, philosophies, and practices. And here Jesus is saying, he's warning them, I know your thoughts, I can prove it. I know I know what's going on in your hearts I'm in, and I'm still in charge and and if I'm he who can search his mind and heart and I will give to each one according to your works, then where are you really at? Where's your hope really at? It's ironic because it, Jesus says to, to the one who conquers he, he's going to give the authority over the nations the the in some ways, right, Jezebel, this woman Jezebel, is saying we can, have, we can have authority, we can have political power through our practices by comparing it to Jezebel. And here Jesus is saying, no, I'm the one who gives political power and authority. I'm the one who says who can rule. And for you to substitute me for someone else is a problem. Let's go on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through each of the last... Four here and then we'll kind of again in a sense come and think through some key ideas that i think are important notice he goes on to the church in sardis and to the angel of the church in sardis write the words of him who has seven the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know your works you have the reputation of being alive but you are dead wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for i have not found your works complete in the sight of god remember then what you have received and heard keep it and repent If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And here we have the idea of this church evidently had the reputation for being alive, right? Like it, it was it was living off its reputation. But Jesus could see that it was dead spiritually and not fully dead in the sense that every single person in the church was not a Christian, but that the church as a whole was dead. And he says, wake up and strengthen what remains. And so he's, he's there's this... You get a fuller picture, he says, when he says, For I have not found your work complete in the sight of my God. And in a sense, there's this idea of, of, okay, they heard the word and they started to act on it, but they never act, they never really acted on it. They never lived it out. The, their hope was not in Christ, it was in their appearance, their reputation. And of course. We, we as Christians can also right prioritize image over reality. As long as we look good to others, does it really matter what God thinks of us? It doesn't really matter if I have a spiritual life, if I have life within me, as long as people think I do. And true Christians wouldn't think that way, but we can be tempted along those lines, and we get, fall into those traps. And here he's speaking to these these believers or this mixed group company probably, and he's saying, hey, you've, what are you truly hoping in? Are you just hoping in that people think you're alive? Like, it doesn't really matter what people think of you because I'm still in charge of my church. I'll come back to this, Scott, because I think that's really important for our day today. Notice the next one in Philadelphia. So the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah where God says he will give the key, so basically give authority over the, the people of God to the king and allow him to rule and, and to, to say who's good and who's bad and who, who deserves judgment and who, and who doesn't. And, of course, that is Jesus, ultimately. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Evidently in this church they, they had been faithful but they also were discouraged. They were, they, they were like, well we don't have a lot of influence. We don't have a lot of power in our community. We don't have a, uh, it was the, almost the opposite of having a good reputation <laughs> but we're dead. This is like they had no reputation or a bad reputation, not in the sense that they were evil but in the sense of, well, who, you know, they're not significant. No one really cares about them. And he he says, I'll make those of the synagogue who's, who say they are Jews and are not. It, here's a reference to, again, to, uh, there's another church who had a Jewish co- co- synagogue in the community who was persecuting, and here you have, in this community, in a sense, saying, we're the saying, we're the true believers in Jehovah, we're the true believers in God, you guys aren't, and there's this, this competition, but in this community, rather than the last community, where they persecuted the church, here these Jews will ultimately come and bow before them and say, no, you, you were right, in a sense. And in, in this context, he's saying, he's saying just endure. You, you may think you have little influence, you may you think you have little power, but just endure because that's what he wants them to do. And we understand how discouragement can can trip us up if you will right because we get discouraged we're trying to do the right thing we're trying to maybe share the gospel with our friends or we're trying to live the right way and 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 fight sin in our lives or we're trying to accomplish something for God and it feels like we don't the, the opportunities don't come and the the situations don't happen the way we hoped they would but discouragement can be a lie that God loves me for how much I do for him that grace isn't as important as influence and power. Like, God saves me because of how great I will be for him, or how, how much I am doing for him. And when you don't have that, then you are discouraged. And again, that's moving our hope away from Christ. Our hope is not in our performance, or how much we can accomplish for God, or our influence, or our platform, or, or, you know, that sense of power that comes from, hey, look, I'm I'm successful in someone's eyes. That's not where our hope lies. And it's true, we know that. If you're a believer in Christ, you know this. But at the same time, the lie can creep in, right? Like, well, why couldn't that have worked out? You know, maybe God is displeased with me because this fell apart. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm fully in control. <laughs> I set up your opportunities, I set up your, your power and, and your influence, and I take it down at various times and various ways, that's up to me, you just follow me, You're, I'm your hope. I'm your hope. And that is so reassuring to this church as a whole, because he's saying, look, if you if you if you just trust in this and hold fast to what you have, you know, you're going to be in in you're going to have my name written on you. You're going to have the city of, of my God written on you. You're going to have you have all of this security because you're worried about your security because you can't see, you're focused on success and not on grace. And so he seeks to encourage them to keep their focus and their trust in him and him alone. And then the last church, Laodicea. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here's that sense of, again, that that Jesus is the, the, the Alpha and the Omega, fully God and yet fully man, the true and faithful witness to God the Father, the one who started all of God's creation. He says, I know your works You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, you say, what, what does it mean to be lukewarm here? What are you talking about, Jesus? He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich And white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Here we have a church that evidently thought they were fine, both spiritually and in life. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And isn't that the temptation of of the wealthy, in a sense, right? To think, okay, I've I've got what I need. And like, like God must love me because, you know, look look at my life, you know. (laughs) I'm good. And yet... Jesus is saying, you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked. You think you're sitting on the top of the social heap, and yet you're at the bottom. (laughs) Homeless, alone, and poor. And, and here what he's really saying is you think that you equate wealth and spiritual wealth, uh, wealth to spiritual wealth. Like if, if, if everything's good, then I'm good with God. And yet that is not the way things work in God's kingdom. It's not how much money you have or how much, how much comfort you have. That doesn't say whether you're right with God or not. Our hope is not in this life. It's not an accumulating, you know, it's not the man who has the most toys wins. And you say, well, no Christian would believe that, but, right, we get tempted. We get twisted sometimes. Wealth, especially, right, in our country, we're bombarded every day with messages like, why don't you have this, you know? It's the newest car. Or the newest house, or the newest this, or the newest that. Because if you don't have that, you must not be as, you know, you're definitely not as comfortable as you could be. And you're definitely not as successful as you should be. And, you know, you should, that's, that's really what your hope should be in, is, is in your ability to get everything that you, I think you should get out of life, right? Wealth, as Jesus said in other passages, It's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven, just like it's hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's practically impossible, unless it's by God. And that's our hope. Our hope is not in our ability. It's not in what we can accumulate. It's not even in what we've received by inheritance from our grandparents. Like, oh, look at my comfortable life now. Our hope is in Jesus. Jesus died for us and rose again. Otherwise, we're hopeless, right? Right? We sin, we're we're wretched before God. Isaiah says that our our righteousness is the things that we hold on to. Say, look, I did this this good, I did that good. They're like filthy rags. They're good for showing off how (laughs) wretched we are. And yet, with our spiritual eyes, sometimes we get tricked in that, don't we? We think, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, I'm better than that guy. Than that girl. I got my life way more together. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, No, 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 no. If you're not depending on me, if you don't realize how much you need me, then you're missing the point. Wealth and comfort nurture the lie that I'm okay without depending on God. And that is a lie that leads you away from Jesus. And right back to yourself. So, what can we take away? Just a few. I just for a few minutes. I just want to focus on three kind of ways that we can keep our hope fixed on Jesus in the gospel. All right. Three ways that we can keep our our hopes fixed on Jesus. If that's what Jesus wants to do, which it's obvious he does. Right. The first one is fight being seduced. Fight being seduced. There are so many voices out there telling you the best way to live. They're saying, hey, this is the way you need to live. This is, this is the best for you. This, these new ideas or this, this, this thing here, this is the way you need to live. And sometimes they put it in kind of future tense, so to speak. And especially in America, it would sound like this in future tense. If you don't vote a certain way, <laughs> then the world will fall apart. <laughs> In his book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore referenced an NPR program about a, science, a scientist named Temple Grandin. And Grandin was concerned with the quality of our beef that we eat. You like to eat beef, probably, right? It's kind of fun to taste. It's good. It's self-confession time. I like it, right? And the problem is, is if an animal is experiencing stress... The beef tastes worse, okay? Good to know. I didn't know that. Maybe you didn't know that, but I guess it's true, okay? And so he was exploring how to keep, you know, the cattle calm as they're about to die. I mean, to me, I would be upset if I was about to die. And obviously, most cows are too. So Grant's research led to one simple insight. Again, this is all in NPR. Novelty distresses cows, The key is to keep everything in their lives feeling and looking as normal and as natural as possible. Russell Moore summarized Grandin's techniques this way. Workers shouldn't yell at cows. And they should never use cattle prods because they're counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them. Well, until you slip their throats, right? Along the way, he devised some new technology that revolutionized big slaughter operations. They're not prodded off the truck, they're led. They go through this gentle process that, that mimics a muzzle's mother's nuzzling touch. Until they reach the end, there are no sudden turns. They just experience the sensation of going home, and then they die. It's It's funny. It is, but the problem is with our spiritual lives, we can be just like that, unfortunately. We can be seduced, like, oh, it's fine, it's comfortable. Aren't you comfortable now? This just feels normal, doesn't it? Just, you just do what feels natural. Enjoy your life. Don't think about it too much. And Jesus is saying, no, that's the way that leads to death. It is death. He's saying, I'm life. And yes, sometimes I feel unnatural because I am. (laughs) You need to be born again to be into my kingdom. And it's going to be different from the kingdom you were part of before. So don't be seduced. And how do we not be seduced? It was ironic because Grandin called it the stairway to heaven. Yeah. How do we not be seduced? First of all, be in the word, right? Be listening to your shepherd. If your shepherd is leading you to life, do you know his voice? Or are you more often listening to the voice of the world that says, hey, be comfortable, be, be fine, Why? Be, do what's normal. Here, the voice of your shepherd is speaking very plainly, saying, don't buy into that seduction. Another way to fight being seduced to consider how God's kingdom is better than this kingdom, have you ever th- thought about how God's kingdom and the way God's ways are better than the world's ways? Have you ever thought about how heaven is way better than what we have on earth? And and part of the challenge, frankly, is I think sometimes, especially in America, we think to ourselves, "Well, heaven's probably like the United States, and you know, before you know X date, you know," and and you know, if we could just just experience this, you know, just get back to the way things were, and I'm sure that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come, and he's going to be like, hey, you know, 1950, you know, we're going to get back to 1950, and that was heaven. Why did you guys leave, you know? But that is not true. That is a lie. Why? Because heaven is way better than anything we could ask or imagine. And if we focus on that and we say, look, what, how, do you take time in your life at all to think about what heaven will be like and how it's worth living for and worth putting with a little discomfort and doing things that at least feel unnatural at times, because we don't want to be seduced by the world. Another thing he says here is to follow through on your worship to follow through on your worship. He says there's a difference between looking alive and being alive. And I was trying to, under, trying to wrestle with how to explain this, and I, I ran across this, another illustration from NPR. I don't know, it's not like I listen to NPR, but I guess they have some good illustrations. They ran an interesting segment about a marketing executive from Colombia named Jose Miguel Sokolov. Um, we, the government of Colombia was approaching Jose with an interesting assignment to run a marketing campaign that will convic- convince guerrilla rebels to demobilize and re-enter society. Just a humorous point at this point. Um, when we were kids, we were talking about the guerrillas in Colombia. My parents were saying we need to pray for you know the missionaries. Uh, they experienced some violence. We actually lost one of the, uh, the the husband of one of the missionaries that we knew died in Colombia, and, and we were we were praying about that. And of course, my sister was not quite young enough to understand the difference between gorillas and gorillas. So she said to pray for the gorillas in Colombia. You know, and, and and she was saying the the animals, right? And of course, at that point, family prayer time ended, you know, because we were all in stitches, right? But, but here, he was saying, th- th- and it's been a problem, but they were working on solving this problem. Like, how do we just convince them that we're not against them, that we're trying to bring them back into society, that in a sense, they can't win, and it's better just to come back. At first, Jose's firm ran a series of radio ad campaigns that featured testimonials from former rebels, but actors actually read the test... Actors actually read the testimonials, so the plan didn't work, right? So they they get these testimonials from former rebels, and then some actor reads it out. It doesn't quite work, evidently. Although you'd think a testimonial would work, but it didn't. So in 2010, he tried a different approach, an ad campaign called Operation Christmas. At nine strategic places in the jungle where the rebels traversed, they strung hundreds of Christmas lights on 75-foot-tall trees. When the rebels walked by a motion sensor, set off it set off the lights and a recorded message that said, if Christmas can come to the jungle, you can come home. That campaign helped demobilize 331 rebels. The next year, they ran a similar campaign entitled Operation Rivers of Light. The firm filled over 7,000 translucent plastic balls with small gifts and heartwarming notes inviting the rebels to come home. As the rebels traveled by the river, this time they saw the balls lit up and floating on the river, coming towards them. They, of course, who could resist, right? You see a ball floating down a river. What are you going to do? You're going to grab it. They opened the balls and received the gifts and read the notes. Sokolov said this, when you see all these lights coming down the river, slowly, slowly floating towards you, you can't escape the thought of this, this beautiful thing. You're drawn toward it. He's saying, there's this beauty that's here. And what he's saying is is very similar here. There's a beauty in real life. (laughs) You ever seen those plastic dead trees, right? I mean, they look like they're alive until you walk up to them and they're like, oh, this is plastic. There's a life that comes from, that's that's real, that that when you experience it for real, when you're up close and with it, you're like, this is beautiful. And what he's saying ultimately to this church, and he's saying to all of us, in a sense, is, You do understand that you were rebels, but now you've been welcomed home. Why do you keep going back into rebel country? (laughs) Why do you keep living as if you're a rebel? You've got something beautiful. Just come home to it. Live in it. You've you've been born again. (laughs) You have new life. And too often we think, well, if it's going to cost me something, if it's difficult, if it's hard, you know, we we start things, but we don't finish things. Why? Because of the cost. But as the line of the song once said, I will not offer anything to God that costs me nothing, right? That's what David said. Coming home would cost those rebels something. But ultimately, you're home. You can live your life for yourself and end up in death, or you can come home. You can know the love of God. You can experience it, and you can know the life that you have in Christ. It's as simple as asking him for it. And this kind of leads to the third point here. Invest your dependence. Invest your dependence. We're always looking for the next show to watch, the next YouTube to click, the next pleasure to enjoy, right? We think we're comfortable. And if we're not, we just go find something to make us comfortable. In the early 1890s, Renoir overheard two of his colleagues talking about a technological miracle that had recently set Paris abuzz. The telephone. Farrain was apparently quite proud of being one of the first people in the city to own one. Can you imagine? Like, today everybody's got a cell phone, right? And it's the first phone in Paris. And Degas r- said, Did it, does it work well? Forain says, very well. You turn a little handle and a bell rings at, either en- at the other end of the wire in the per- apartment of the person you were calling. When he unhooks the earphone, you talk. You know, he's explaining what a telephone does. We all know what a telephone does, Right. After reflecting a moment, Haas asked, how and does it work just as well the other way around? The other person can also turn a little handle and ring you up? Of course, replied Farin. And when the bell rings, you get up and answer it? Why, yes, certainly. Just like a servant, concluded Haas. What we submit ourselves to is what rules us. And if you submit yourselves to comfort... If you submit yourselves to the next click, the next pleasure, that's what you serve. It doesn't serve you. You serve it. And there is no substitute for Jesus. But the world is definitely trying to get you to to submit to someone other than Jesus. The notifications on your phone, the Things that pop up that are like, hey, just just do this for a while. Where are you investing your dependence? Where are you saying, you know what, I'm I'm really dependent here? A lot of times what we do is say, I'm dependent, I'm bored, I'm dependent, I'm I'm tired, I'm dependent, I'm weak, I'm dependent, I, I need I need something. And what do we do? We turn to our phones, we turn to the internet. We turn to. And we invest our dependence in those things, and those things won't save us. They won't. And everybody knows it, right? Mental illness is up. Social ills are up. All these things are. Problems are expanding. Why? Why? Because we invest our dependence in the wrong things. Jesus is our Savior. He died for us and rose again. I think we just invest a little bit of dependence on Him. It goes a long way. When you're tired, talk to Him. When you're weak, talk to Him. When you're you're just looking for a little comfort, He is the God of all comforts, is He not? And as you say, well, that's that's just something I do. It's not that big a deal. I get it one time here and there. It's probably not a big deal, but the bigger picture is this. Which lie are you buying into? Or are you buying into the truth that Jesus is your Savior? He's your shepherd, He's your friend. In fact, that's the way this ends, right? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and him and eat with him and he with me. He says, I'm going to, we'll have a great time together. We'll, we'll fellowship together. We'll be friends together. But if you invest your dependence somewhere else, how can we be friends? What are you really doing to invest in heavenly treasure? And just, and I'm not talking about all the things you need to do as much as it is just saying, wow, look at how how much I need Jesus. Are you investing in that? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you spending time in his word? Because again, this is why we talk about being a scripture-focused family. Why? Because this is what we need. We need him and his word in our lives. So if you're here this morning, maybe a next step, first of all, is if you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Christ, you don't have that hope, you don't have that new spiritual life in you, the way you get it is very simple. It's, it's a gift that we receive, as Jed already quoted, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you have the gift Romans ten thirteen says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord be saved. It's, it's, it's a free gift. You just have to ask. The question is, have you asked? Simple as that. Jesus promises that if you ask, he will give you that eternal life as a free gift. And if you're, so if you haven't done that, you need to do that first. And then maybe pick one of these ways. Maybe invest your dependence or spend a, a little time Following through on your worship, you know, things that you said, well, I love God and I wanted to do this, but I just never got it done. Just do it. Not because it saves you, but because it helps you to see the beauty of who he is. And the third way is fight being seduced. Maybe this is just your, you recognize I'm being seduced in a couple of different ways and I need to fight that. Of course, the biggest thing you can do is to preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself, to say, look, this is who I am in Christ. I am redeemed, I am adopted, I'm chosen, not because of who I am or what I have done, but because Jesus died for me and rose again. And that is my hope, that is what I cling to in life. In life or in death, we have a God of mercy who comes to us. So where are you at? Have you trusted in him? Are you, where is your hope at? Is it in your ability to handle life or is it in Jesus? Is it, where is, your, is it in your wealth and how much you can accomplish and what kind of career you can get or is it in Jesus? Is it in some kind of new idea or a new philosophy that's going to come along and make all of life better and turn everything around or is it in Jesus because he will turn everything around. He's promised to do so. So, who is Jesus to you? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for reminding us through your word and through Jesus' message to these churches that the biggest thing we struggle with is not how successful we're going to be or how much that we can accomplish in this life or what we can do with our lives as much as it is that we just need to trust in Jesus and cling to him. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Help us to trust in that. Help us to cling to that. Help us to be faithful to that. In your son's name, amen.